So good evening. Hope you're still hanging in there. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, probably my favorite subject, which are the Brahma Viharas, which you've been practicing some in the afternoon. So Brahma Viharas means the uh, abode of the gods or the radiant abodes. It's uh, a translation for a healthy state of the mind. How to hold in different circumstances, how to hold a healthy state of mind. And even the words when we hear them inspire a kind of joy just to hear them because they're so universally true. And they are basically how to keep love, compassion, joy, and equanimity under all circumstances. So the mind is uh, thought of as a crystal. I like that image, like when the crystal, you have different kind of sides to it. And when the light falls through, it takes on a different quality depending on like a kaleidoscope when you look into it. And so it's the same with the mind, like it actually turns. So behind the mind is the heart. And the heart's task is to love. That's our true nature, is that's who we really are, is this love. And it can shine through the mind, like through a crystal. And so it is said that when um, friendliness, when love meets life, when love meets life, it turns into friendliness. And we can see that, you know, like I, I remember when I used to be on the BART or somewhere, and I would automatically go towards judging, you know, people. It's just automatic, right? You sit there, it's like, what is she wearing? I really can't believe that. that no taste or whatever the hell my mind was coming up with. And I realized that I really could be spending my time in better fashion. And the best part was when you would meet one of some of these people that first you thought you had all these judgments about. And then you meet them and you realize, wow, they're actually quite nice. And who cares whether you like their sweater or not? And it just, uh, you realize how much energy goes into these useless um, states of mind. So the Brahma Vihara is a deliberate way of training the mind to hold a healthy state, which is friendliness. That when you meet people, instead of fantasizing about who they should be, like that you simply have a friendly attitude toward them. You don't have to like them. Somebody said that yesterday, maybe Matthew, but uh, you can have that friendly attitude. And I love that. And I love that it's a practice. I love that it's been around for 2,500 years. It is said that's how long um, it's been happening. And when uh, Jack and Wes first came from Thailand, uh, they were young men. And you're still young, of course, but they were younger then. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they were very intent on the uh, kind of co concentration practices. And it is said that there are two wings to freedom. One is that concentration, mindfulness, like you pay attention, like in every moment. But the other wing is compassion. Or you could think of the other wing being the Brahma Viharas, not just compassion, but all of them. To me, they're all of them. And they're needed. And, but we don't realize that at first. We think, yeah, 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 that lovey-dovey stuff. It's like, you know, let's leave that for the new agey people or something. <laughs> but there's actually a real science behind it. And um, uh, to practice it, it, it truly changes your life. I, I got um, interviewed for a German magazine a few years back, and they wanted to know what pose changed my life. And I had to say, well, it wasn't a pose, I'm sorry to say. It wasn't some magical pose. It was metta. It's just to learn how to do this, you know, despite everything, despite all the, you may have noticed how, like, the inner little voices come up when you are trying to do metta for yourself and immediately saying, like, who do you think you are? Like... <laughs> You don't, like, deserve to be happy or whatever. It's like, so when Jack and Wes came back and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon, uh, they were encountering that sometimes those practices, the mindfulness practice, would kind of bring out that, you know, we're going to sit until we're enlightened and just forget about the knee. If the knee goes... <laughs> Who cares? So we're just going to sit here and take on this challenge. And then they realized that it actually brought the worst out in people, like that kind of not good enoughness that's underlying so much of our society. And so they, they realized like they really needed to bring in this other wing. And so that's when I think they started to do uh, this metta like as part of um, a retreat because to, to, in order to meet that kind of unworthiness that so many people are um, fighting with. And I'm so glad they did, because it did change my life. So, when love meets life, it turns into friendliness or metta. When love, the crystal, turns, and love encounters suffering... Friendliness is not enough. It's like when you sometimes um, um, meet somebody who is really angry and you try to like pacify them by speaking really softly and they get angrier. It's not enough. Like your intention is good, but they're, they're going to get enraged. You almost have to meet them. You have to, I hear you're really mad. <laughs> With a kind of, a, and they're like, yes, I'm really mad. And then you can kind of bring them down. So it's like, it's not enough to be friendly in the face of suffering. It just doesn't quite meet it. It doesn't quite pick the person up where they are, or yourself for that matter. So then the crystal turns and there is uh, one response to, uh, suf to um, suffering, which is to tap into compassion. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Then the third is when uh, love meets uh, friendliness, then it turns into joy. 
sorry, when love meets um, happiness, of course, when it, it meets happiness, it turns into joy. And that's a nice, um, also innate response that we have. Like when somebody that you love tells you that something good happened to them and you're like, wow, I'm so happy for you. It turns into your own joy. And the last one is when love meets with difficulty, um, it, the crystal turns toward uh, equanimity. It's like seeing with things with a little bit of space. So I'll briefly touch upon all four of these abodes because they are so universal to me, and I love universal teachings. So um, coming back to metta and um, this unworthiness that so many of us feel like this not good enoughness that I see in yoga a lot, people pushing their innocent little creature body because they think whatever pose they're in is not good enough. Unfortunately, you know, in our society, that's fed, right? Like, who is at the um, front of the magazines? It's bendy, usually young, white women, uh, flexible, and so then that's lodged in our head. Like, this is what yoga looks like, and that makes me really mad and, and sad <laughs> because yoga is truly for everybody. It's not about having the right kind of body or the right kind of pose. There's always a way because otherwise it just reinforces that um, not enoughness and that we're, we're going to be really tough on ourselves. And uh, when around that same time that uh, Jack and Wes company came back and realized that it was important to do the metta. Um, they uh, had a conference with the Dalai Lama, and um, they, it took 10 minutes for the Dalai Lama's translator to convey the concept of self-hatred. He was stunned. He was like, what? But that's wrong. <laughs> And he was asking all these Western practitioners, you too have experienced that, self-hatred and putting yourself down? People were nodding. And he was like, yeah, but that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, that's when the order got changed, too. That Remember when I was doing metta on the first day? I was giving you the option of doing it with a mentor. Like traditionally, it was done for the person, for yourself first. But because there was so much self-hatred that would come up, they would, they, they would have to change it. They would have to say, okay, we need to like almost get you in the back door. So like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to open our heart with somebody that's really easy and then we're going to sneak ourselves in the back door. <laughs> because of that. And in, in the uh, Asian, um, and that's a lot of the translations, not just in um, the Buddhist, but also in the yoga, it, there's, a, there's a mistranslation when you see those stern yogis. They're not really stern. And in their culture, it actually doesn't translate to that kind of self-flagellation that we end up doing to ourselves with these practices. And that's why it's so important that for us, they get slightly translated. They have to become softer. Because in other countries, they don't really have, they have other problems. They don't really have that self-hatred and this kind of not enoughness. They truly ha don't have enough um, food and, 
you know, and think. So they, they don't, it doesn't even occur to them to think that they themselves are not enough. So it's an interesting, just a cultural little difference to be realizing that when we're practicing that we need to soften all of these with, uh, with metta and karuna and mudita and upekshanam. So, my own uh, journey with metta was really interesting because when I first um, was introduced to it, I was like, yeah, 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 that's nice, but give me the real stuff. I want to concentrate. You know, I was just like the rest of them. I wanted the challenge. And in the metta, I would go straight to, to, to the last category, like, you know, doing metta for Trump or whatever, for, <laughs> the, <laughs> for the enemy. And, you know, then I came for a month-long retreat, and, um, and um, about three days in, I went to my teacher, Jack, and I said, I said, I... I I, I don't understand what's going on. I am so afraid. Like, my heart is beating. I'm, my nervous system can't come down. Like, I'm just, I don't understand. Like, here we are in the safest place on earth. Like, these are all committed yogis. What am I afraid of? What, why do I have, my heart was beating like a little bird trying to escape out of my chest. And as Jack is, he was like, goody. <laughs> Let's go look. And I was like, okay, you know, so they made me close my eyes and I was taking a deep breath into my heart and going into my heart and I was like, and he was like guiding me in and what's going on. And my eyes popped open and I was like, I'm afraid of these people. I was stunned because I, you know, you probably don't think I'm particularly shy or anything. Most people don't, but I actually do have a very introverted and shy side, which doesn't come out. And truthfully, my engaging with people is partly to make sure you're not meaning me any harm. So I engage, so people not talking is threat for me. And I never realized this because I had a, an abandonment uh, um, as a child. I found out later after the retreat I went to talk to my mom, and I, sure enough, I went to the hospital as a child had a mysterious illness, and um, the doctors at the time were not that enlightened, and uh, my mom dropped me off, and she had two little boys to care for, and then the next day, I was wailing. I was 18 months old, and uh, the doctor said, Frau Ecker, she's my mom's name, or was, if your daughter is going to make a racket like this, it's best you don't come back for the t duration. So she left me for 10 days. And when she came back, God knows what happened. I have no recollection, but, you know, probably at 18 months I got frightened, the, the boots off me frightened with machines and procedures and whatnot. And when she came back, I, I wouldn't make eye contact and I wouldn't smile for many years. I was a very withdrawn toddler after that. So I had a little trauma, many of us do. Many of us do. And so then we live with that, and we don't realize that we're exposed to all kinds of uh, insecurities and difficulties. And so when I found out, I also realized that, for example, in yoga class, when I had to be in front of people, I would be terrified. 
Like there would be, I would get people as quickly as possible into downward facing dog <laughs> so that I could, so I could talk to their butts rather than to have, you know, this many eyes looking at me. <laughs> and I realized then with, when, with the help of Jack, I was like, wow, this is what's been happening. It's not really that I'm doubting, you know, a part of me was like, I've been doing this for a long time. I shouldn't be this nervous. Well, I wasn't, not from that. I was literally afraid of people. So then Jack was like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to go. Um, he gave me his practice room, interview room to do my practice in. And he said, you can go away from people if you feel like you need to have that space. And I want you to do meta 24-7 for a month. So yes, I did. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and it would still be going on. And I would just do metta for myself until it just, I'm getting chills, until it started sinking in. And that changed my life. It really did. It's like that feeling of not enoughness slowly started going away. And the feeling of uh, being so afraid of people. I still get a little nervous sometimes, you know, when there's a, now I'm doing these, with Daniela in Cologne, these big conferences with, uh, you know, hundreds of people. And, and sometimes I, I still get nervous. Like, but then I usually just mention it. And I know I have the metta practice to, to carry me through. So, yeah, that's my little plug for the metta. And here's a little story. You can close your eyes, if you like, for just a moment. It was Thursday, Thanksgiving. Our family had spent the days before the holiday in San Francisco with my husband's parents. But in order for us to be back at work in Los Angeles, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles to Southern California on Thanksgiving Day. It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids, it can be a 14-hours endurance test. When we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, a little metropolis made up of six gas stations and a diner. And it was into the one diner that the four of us trooped, road-weary and saddle-sore. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked around the room. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everyone else was busy eating talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee. Hey there! Two words he thought were one. Hey there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray, his face alight with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless baby grin. He wiggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes couldn't take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn, baggy pants and spindly, a spindly body, toes that poked out of old, old shoes, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed and unwashed, whiskers too short to be called a beard. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled. His hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi, big boy. I see you, Buster. 
My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and oh poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people sitting near us hummed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric, but he pulverized it on the tray. I thought, why me under my breath? The meal came, and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, Do you know patty cakes? boy! you know peekaboo. Look, here is peekaboo. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk and a definite disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, Why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check and told me to get Eric and meet him in the parking lot. I dragged Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised, waiting, directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to me or Eric as I headed to the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him, and as I did so, Eric, all the while his eyes riveted on his new best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in the baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The old bum's eyes asked, implored, Would you? Would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms into the men's. Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder, and the man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently so gently cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and said squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding voice, Now you take proper care of this baby. And somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly as though he was in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've just given me my Thanksgiving gift. I said nothing more than a muttering thanks, and with Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, and why I was saying, My God, don't let me forget, please. Don't let me forget.
So, quite some time ago when I started on the path, this path, I met some Buddhists, and I truly thought, that was like 30 years ago, my first Buddhist I met, and I thought, these, these were very dour species who, who like to focus on suffering and misery. And um, it took me a while to understand the power of actually confronting, like Matthew was so beautifully sharing yesterday, uh, about confronting your own suffering and what happens when you do, and that actually without that, there is no moving forward on the path. Like Jack's teacher, he would always say that you haven't even start to meditate unless you've shed some real tears, the ocean of tears. So the Brahma Viharas, the second part, is to not only um, confront your suffering, but tap into uh, the compassion, which actually is an elixir, the funny part is that we want to resist. We don't want to usually feel our suffering. We'd rather push it away. It's just, we want to, it's aversion. We want to push it away. And when we do, we actually never get to feel like the uh, compassion is actually like an elixir. It's like a little magic um, out of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> You can drink it. When you drink the compassion, it's soothing whatever pain that you're feeling. And when we spend time pushing it away, we never get to that cooling relief. So that's a nice thing to remember. It's the same with uh, when we're um, stopping the automatic grasping, then we have gratitude, which is also a, a nice little elixir. It's like when we're just being content with what is here right now, there's this sweet gratitude that all of a sudden comes. Thanksgiving, right? So there's a few problems with, um, with um, suffering that I wanted to mention from my perspective, which is um, one of the problems with a feeling, besides trying to avoid it at all costs, is that we tend to compare we tend to compare like suffering, which actually is a clever strategy of the mind to not feel it. Like we, you know, I've seen like once, I remember that for some reason, like I was in um, a Waldorf school and I was actually young. I was like 16 and there was this teacher. I actually liked him, Bruno, but there was this little child, like maybe it was eight year old child who I forget what the suffering was. But it was totally real for that little person. And I remember, like, the teacher was kind of, like, talking down, like, well, you know, that's really, it's not such a big deal. And kind of diminishing it. And I remember, like, that bothered me a lot. I was like, well, you know, for, to you, maybe that is no big deal. But it's like, to this person, it's a big deal. It's really important to remember that suffering is difficult no matter who experiences it. It really sucks. Like, it doesn't matter like what for you is suffering may not be for another person. And it's really important that we don't diminish or compare 
our suffering to somebody else and kind of say, well, actually, I shouldn't be suffering because blah, blah, blah. The mind has this clever way of actually talking us out of feeling compassion. It's like the best way of dealing with compassion is to let that drop away, the stories, and just say, well, how can I respond in compassion? And to me, compassion is not just a, um, a state of mind, but it's actually also an action. It's like when I'm suffering, like, I have my things, you know, I'm Swiss, so I probably will eat some chocolate. It almost always works with me, <laughs> depending on the kind of suffering. Like, it's a kind of heart longing and little chocolate, dark chocolate just does the trick. Or maybe it's a hot bath. Like doing something that soothes you, that you are, there's an act of compassion behind it. I think that's important. And another thing is like when you're, what I found, like because it's easy to say, well, don't compare, right? Don't compare yourself to other sufferers or other sufferers to you. We are not in a society that really encourages that much. Have you noticed that? Where it's so competitive. So I tend to compare anyways. So what I learned to do a little trick over the years is I learned to compare myself in all possible directions. So not just, like, I, for example, to give you an example, I would compare myself um, in the early, my early careers uh, uh, to the people who are um, great yogis. And, you know, now looking back, I, I probably was a pretty great yogi then, <laughs> but I didn't think so. I, plus, I was feeling very vulnerable. I was getting sick often because I was sick as a child. So I was, like, envious, like, these people could keep up a schedule, keep up the pace. And, and I was like, I thought like I was, I got the short, short straw. Isn't that what you say? Sh- short straw? I got the short straw somehow. Or like I would look at my dad and now my husband is like that. He's part American Indian and he's just strong as an ox. And my dad too, my dad has never, was never sick. I didn't see my, my dad ever in bed. Like maybe he would lay on the couch for a few hours, but that would be it. And I'd be like really jealous. I was like, I was so sick as a child. And so when I compare myself with the people who are sturdy or strong, I would feed my own story that somehow I got the short stick. And still, I wasn't getting the compassion that I actually needed. So then I had to like, because I couldn't stop comparing myself to these people who had the better deal, I started comparing myself in the other direction. I said, oh, wow, look at this person in the wheelchair. Well, this person is a lot less. So when you find yourself comparing a lot, then go ahead and compare. Until in the end, it's like the great equalizer. When you compare in every direction, you actually end up back at the same place, which means you have to face your own suffering. Which is the whole point. When you're facing your own suffering, all of a sudden you, 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 you get to you tap into that flow uh, of compassion. And they have studies, you know, that compassion is innate. That uh, Jack would say this story like that a hardened criminal is just as likely jumping into the pool to save the toddler as anybody else. They forget that they're hardened criminals. Like right? The toddler is like fell in the, and they jump in. They forget like, oh, wait a minute, I'm just supposed to be... You know, 
So it's completely hardwired into us. That's the good news. So it's like it's our own stupidity that blocks this innate juice from flooding us. So when you're doing your mindfulness, it's great when you start seeing all these shenanigans that the mind has to like avoid actually getting into, the, into your own medicine. It's like, you know, there is, um, nature is so amazing to me. Um, there is um, studies that when people have certain illness, like sometimes there is a, a corresponding plant in the garden that appears. It's completely not native. Nobody knows where it came from. And when they study it, it actually is the medicine for the illness in the house. It's like the plant was called. So the medicine actually is there. But we are often so busy with our little shenanigans that we don't actually get to the medicine. So the Brahma Viharas to me are actually getting into the medicine and then holding those healthy states of mind. So Ellie Weasel says, Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how one uses it. If you use it to increase the anguish of others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall shall all understand that suffering can elevate men as well as diminish him. Oh, I brought too many stories. I think we're going to move on to Joy, Mudita. How are you guys doing? Just no, don't talk. <laughs> so the joy is, I've been looking forward to get to that part too, because it's um, if paradoxically, like the more I allowed my own suffering to be felt and experienced, the more I actually had, have developed a capacity for joy. It's kind of a paradox, but it's true. It seems like that's one is the other side of the same coin. So How is that? Am I back on line? So the deeper the suffering is in some ways, the, the more we can experience almost like guilt when we feel joy. And it's that I love that the Brahma Viharas stress or emphasize the importance of actually bathing in the joy when it happens. 
And as a matter of fact, it's a good sign uh, that when you're um, practicing, on your practice, when you have attacks of joy for no particular reason, (laughs) meaning like it's not because you are anticipating something in the future or because you bought a pair of boots or you, 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 you got a PhD. No, it's just, it just overcomes you. Like all of a sudden you're standing and you're just like, oh, I'm alive. And you feel the breath and there's this joy bubbling up. It's wonderful. And I want you to like grab it as you can when it comes. Like stop, stop walking, stop eating, stop doing anything and just like stop and breathe it in. Try to like take it into every cell. Feed yourself with this joy. And um, there's a story of the Dalai Lama that illustrates exactly the importance of mudita. Um, He was um, giving this really serious teaching about the Kala Chakra. It's like one of the most mm, sacred and weighty teaching that he gives. And so he was moving into the stadium and there were 10,000 people and there was the whole Tibetan retinue with the, you know, collars and the Trump, like the, what are they called? The long, they're like all porns. They look like all porns, the Swiss all porns. I forget what they're called in, but anyway, the long instrument that they blow, the horns they blow through. And um, Dalai Lama came in, and there was a stage prepared for him. And um, everybody was standing, and it was all, like, very serious and reverent. And so the Dalai Lama sat down on his throne, and it was made out of air. So it bounced. (laughs) And he had this, like, expression on his face, like, (laughs) what was that? And then he did it again. (laughs) And then he was like, slowly, like this huge grin started to spread on his face. And before you knew it, he just started bouncing up and down like a little trampoline, having a great time. Like he did that for five minutes. And And there are some who believe that was actually his teaching, that his teaching was like, take the joy when it comes. That is what it's meant to do. And another um, of my favorite story is by um, Maurice Sendak, who is the author of Where the Wild Things Are. And he tells the story of a boy who wrote to him, he sent me a charming card with a drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much, he ate it. (laughs) That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. So that kind of joy is what we're looking for on the spiritual path. It doesn't have to be complicated. And then there is another side to to, uh, joy that I'll I'll maybe get in some other time, which is uh, actually the whole mudita is sympathetic joy, 
which means that um, we learn to truly have joy for other people too. And of course, that's easy when it's somebody you love. Like somebody you love comes and tells you their success. You're like, wow, I'm so happy for you. But what happens when somebody that you're working with and, you know, maybe is much younger and has less experience (laughs) and all of a sudden they're promoted ahead of you, right? How happy are we then? (laughs) All of a sudden it's like, oops, you know, you're like, they don't deserve this. They went, so the, the, what, aren't you, you calling, Americans call this the green little monster or something? Jealousy and envy come up, right? And then all of a sudden we can't have access to the same joy. And it can be quite a big, I had that a little bit. I thought I knew who deserved to be doing what. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I really looked at it, uh, not only did it come out from some part of uh, insecurity in myself, which the meta helped, but it also was absurd to realize that, you know, it's like the sun. All of a sudden, the sun this decides, well, you didn't do so good today. I'm not going to shine on you today. Or the rain, you know, things like, well, that plant didn't produce anything good, so I'm not going to rain on you today. It's like that, like what, when we do this, when we discriminate, who, what do we know why somebody else is successful or is even more successful than we are? Who do, what do we know that they really are doing? So the, the remedy for this is when we tap in to finding something that we like, even if it's not our cup of tea, what they're doing, and it's a very powerful practice. And there is a phrase that goes along with it. Are we getting to Mudita this week? Maybe not, right? Just yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe some other time. <laughs> so there's a phrase that goes with it that you literally wish this person to be successful until you actually feel it. And then when you feel that, it's like... And the funny part is that when we... Um, when we judge other people of what they should be getting or how successful they should be, we are actually diminishing our own success, which is really funny. We block because, of course, we're our own worst critique, too. So when we do that habitually with others, we block our own way to being successful as well. So there's another side to the sympathetic joy that is also very um, worth mentioning as a as a practice. To me, I have been practicing this for a while. And here is the story that goes with Mudita. It's called Boyle's Law. This is a question that was given at a University of Toronto chemistry exam. It was a bonus question at the end of the test, and it was about Boyle's Law which is an experimental gas law which describes how the pressure of a gas tends to decrease as the volume of a gas increases. The bonus questions ask, do you believe hell is exothermic, gives off heat, or endothermic, absorbs heat? Students mostly didn't know what to do with this question, but one student wrote this. To solve this question, we need to know how the mass of hell is changing. So we need to know the rate in which souls are moving into hell. I think we can safely assume that once a soul gets there, it will not leave. Therefore, no souls are leaving. And as for how many souls are entering hell, 
Most religions state that if you are not a member of their religion in good standing, you will go to hell. Since there's more than one of these religions, and since people do not belong to more than one religion, we can deduce that all souls will go to hell. <laughs> With birth rates as they are, we can expect the number of souls in hell to increase exponentially. Now, Boyle's law states that in order for the temperature and pressure of hell to stay the same, the volume of hell has to extend proportionally as souls are added. This gives two possibilities. If hell is expanding at a slower rate than the rate at which souls are entering, the temperature and pressure in hell will increase until all hell breaks loose. <laughs> if hell is expanding at a rate faster than the increase of souls entering, then the temperature and pressure will drop until hell freezes over. So which is it? If I accept the statement given by Teresa during her freshman year that it will be a cold day in hell before she sleeps with me and take into account the fact that I slept with her last night, then number two must be true. And thus, I'm sure that hell is exothermic and it is already frozen over. The conclusion of this theory is that since hell is frozen over, it follows that it is not accepting any more souls, leaving only heaven, thereby proving the existence of a divine being, which explains why last night Teresa kept shouting, Oh my God. <laughs> which brings us to the last one, Upeka. A little equanimity. So we're almost out of time. So I'm just going to read you what. Um, uh, okay, go, ahead. go ahead. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Not too much. <laughs> well, be specific. Like five minutes. Sure. Okay, five minutes extra time. You okay with that, Matthew? <laughs> okay, so the last of the four abodes is equanimity, and that's literally when we're um, meeting something that's difficult. And to me, uh, it's actually also very important. It brings a cooling quality to um, our state of mind. All the three previous ones are actually quite warm. They, they, they bring warmth to the heart, to the mind, this last one cools things down, which can be very important. And basically, I think the, the most important part about this that I wanted to share was uh, um, the relationship model. It's like we have a lot of confusion, which is um, what I was saying on the first day with uh, the earth, like the creating boundaries. If people created better boundaries with each other, we would have a lot less problem. I feel that so strongly. It's like partly because we don't create proper boundaries with what is okay for us. So then when people trespass on our boundaries because we didn't establish them in the first place, then there's all this kind of karma and resentment that's building. So the relationship model, we somehow have this idea that people who are part of our family or close to us, that they belong on the first string close to us. But what if somebody who is close to us is on a really destructive path? What then? 
it's like, you know, the classic example I, I had to deal with this is like of a close friend becoming a heroin addict. Well, if you keep this person close, then they're going to take you down with them. They're going to steal from you. They're going to, you know, betray you. They are not themselves. This is the perfect example when equanimity is needed. Well, because equanimity actually means to create luminous space. It's also like some say it's, it means overlooking the valley. So we're not right in front. So sometimes it means that we need to put the person, like if you think about a, a, a relationships that they are in a concentric rings, that you're in the center, instead of the first ring, maybe they belong on the fifth ring or even further away. And the reason for that is that you can still love them. Because if they're too close and they're involved in destructive behavior, you're going to end up hating them. And that is a no-go with the Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas is actually a way to stay loving. And that means you're going to have to like move the person further away. And then you can say, hey, I love you, but you, know, you have to obviously work out your own stuff until, you know, that's the phrase that goes with it, you're heir to your own karma. You can't make them change. If they're on a destructive path, there's nothing you can do until they hit rock bottom. And then you can be there. If you, if you keep them too close without equanimity, you're going to end up hating them, and then you're not going to be able to be there for them when they actually maybe are hitting rock, rock bottom, and they are ready to be helped. So equanimity is this incredible way of creating space so that you can stay in a space of love. And Ramda says, doing spiritual practice can be as much of a trap as any other melodrama. It's useful to have some perspective about the path in order to keep yourself from getting too caught up in the state in which you are working. These pointers may help. Each stage that you can label must pass away. Even the labeling will ultimately pass. A person who thinks, I am enlightened, probably isn't. The initial euphoria that comes through the first awakening into a little consciousness will pass away, leaving a sense of loss or feeling of falling out of grace, even despair. The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross deals with that state. Practice is a bit like a roller roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it is not that you are getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you are seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temple get fiercer as you proceed toward each inner temple. But, of course, the light is brighter also. At first, you may think of your spiritual practice as a limited part of your life. In time, you will come to realize that everything you do is a part of your practice. One of the traps along the way is the trap of purity. You will be doing everything just as you are supposed to and get caught in how good you are. 
It's called the golden chain in India. It's not a chain of iron, but it's still a chain. You will have to finally have to give up even your ideas of purity if you expect to really come to freedom. Early in the journey, you wonder how long the journey will take and whether you will make it in this lifetime. Later, you see that where you are going is here and you arrive now. And so you stop asking that question. At first, you try. Later, you do your practice because actually, what else is there to do? What else is there to do? Please close your eyes and sit upright for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.